from Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, inside Google's regenerative agriculture play, a new linear generator powers up grid resilience, the impact, or lack thereof, of climate-themed investment funds, and will alternative proteins disrupt textiles? We're pulling this out of whole cloth this week on 350. It's September 3rd, 2021, the cusp of Labor Day weekend here in the United States. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz's always laboring editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. You give me too much credit. That is our ethos here at Green Biz. <laughs> well, you and I, you and I both know the secret, and it's about you and I both that, uh, you know... <laughs> The editorial never really sleeps. Uh, there's just That's true. way too much to do and way too many stories mm-hmm. and way too uh, too many things to know about in this space. And mm-hmm. that's what we do. And somebody once described me as the uh, whale that filters the krill. I'm not sure <laughs> I like that, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of blubber in there as well. But um, uh, I that is sort of a job that we do. So is many it, weird me- metaphors there. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's the yeah. end of summer, the beginning of September. You know, it's sort of the, traditionally the launch of, uh, of, a, of a new, not a new year, but a new something. Uh, what, yeah. does that lo- what does that look like for you? What's happening in September? Oh Anything gosh. different or is it just more of the same? Well, it is the launch of a new year. And it is kind of bizarre how that happens, even though, you know, like the Kids go back in August now. I don't know. All my nieces and nephews go back in August. So the, 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 it used to be the school year started after September or whatever, Labor Day in the U.S. And yeah. But this year, what's going on? I, I've got my eyes on Climate Week and the Sustainable Development Summit that the uh, World Economic Forum is putting on the same week. And I'm also excited to be planning for my first COP. Uh, amid all the uncertainty, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to interact at that level. I I, I know you've been there. You're jaded, perhaps, but I'm uh, I'm starting to get really excited about hearing actual action, maybe. <laughs> but it's but it's going to be a tough one. There's a lot of scrutiny, right? Lots yeah. of doubts and cynics and. Lots of work. Yeah, me jaded? I don't think so. But um, mm. no, it is. I'll be there as well, as you know. And uh, maybe the first time in two years that I actually get to see you is in Glasgow, Scotland. That's true. Uh, no, but I'll also be out for Climate Week, and Climate Week is going to be more virtual. So my week in New York, uh, that week is turning into much more of a uh, meetings and uh, a lot of things related to Greenfin and financial uh, ESG stuff. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. But. Um, that's a look ahead. Yeah, it's going to be a crazy, crazy fall. So I'm I hope, good. I hope you all are strapped in. Well, like now uh, let's unstrap and talk about the weekend review. All right, let's talk the 
food here and agriculture and uh, a piece by our colleague Teresa Lieb, our food systems analyst at GreenBiz Group, about Google's regenerative agriculture play and a conversation she had with Michelle Bucker, I think is how you say his name, who is uh, the vice president of global workplace programs at Google and a sponsor of something called Regen One, which is a... Uh, a consortium of 150 stakeholders working to transition a million acres of farmland in Northern California to regenerative practices by 2025. That's a mouthful, but let's uh, let's break that down. I mean, um, it's 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 got a bunch of companies and food service companies and Whole Foods and and university agri uh, academic community and food service companies like uh, Compass that uh, provide institutional services at, at, at universities and government offices and such. This is just a really interesting thing. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. One is that it feels like a move away from organic, which is hmm. not, not a move away from organic, but it, it's acknowledging that organic continues to be a pretty small percent of agriculture, 1%, according to Michelle. You know, even if we double or triple or quadruple that, it's still going to be a tiny amount. But regen regenerative enables uh, traditional farmers to to continue doing what they're doing, uh, but in some new ways without necessarily letting their land lie fallow or not, you know, it's, I think, maybe a little bit closer to traditional farming and as such mm -hmm. may have a, uh, a broader uptake than organic has. Not, nothing wrong with organic and organic foods continue to do well in, in markets. So I, I don't quite understand the difference between only 1% of, of land being farmed organically, at least according to the interview that uh, Teresa did, uh, and the fact that organic foods continue to grow in the marketplace. But somehow there is uh, that um, duality. Um, but I think this is just a really interesting development. What do, what do you think, Heather, here? So I think there's a couple couple things at play here for me. One is actually, just this is an interesting aside, I actually usually buy the... There's an interesting label. It's some of the some of them are called certified transitional organic, and there's you know there's there's a number of companies that are that are working towards something, right? Because it takes what three years, I believe, to earn the organic certification, and that's part of what's going on here. Regenerative agriculture. How long have we really been talking about it at this level? It's a few years now, but not five, right? I mean, so I so for me, it's that to go back to that one percent. I think there's a bubbling of, of things beyond the 1% that are going to make other declarations that consumers are interested in. I, I personally really appreciate it when a farm is working towards something different, towards something that is less nitrogen fertilizer oriented or pesticides and so forth. And, and then I see that the, com the company and the, 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 the food producer and the farmer are working toward that. So that's just a kind of a long aside. But what I found um, really intriguing about this is that the, the you and you mentioned them, they're the buyers, right? So we haven't really had the buyers involved in this conversation as much. Like, what do the buyers want to buy? How are people like me and you looking for the healthy things? What how much do we how much are we excited about this regenerative stuff? And so to me, that's what the the, the involvement of Google and Compass and these other organizations in that in this movement is important and it's something that we haven't talked about as much and that's i really one of the reasons i really appreciated this interview because it kind of gave me the um the buyer's mindset if you will into 
into this movement. Yeah, but when you talk about buyers, I, I don't know that certainly with, with Regen 1, this particular uh, initiative, it's it's aimed at you and and me as as shoppers. This is really at the institutional level creating. Exactly. A, That's yeah. I mean the institutional buyer is exactly what I'm talking about is the big buyers, the the food service companies that do change behaviors. You know, like if, if, if let's take us take lunches, right? So the the habits that a child or a person builds in in school in the lunch room, if they're buying the school, it are are made their their lifelong habits in many cases. If that I mean that's which is one of the reasons we've been focusing on di changing diets. There is get people eating more healthily from a young age and 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 make it a habit. So if if we focus on changing, you know. I guess when we do have camp, corporate campuses open again, you know, what are people serving in those cafeterias? How, what are those choices saying about what people would have, want to have at home? You know, like, oh, I really like this. I'm going to start buying it at home. So I feel like that, that's what I meant is, is sort of changing that habit, that behavior, that, that mindset. Yeah. The, the other thing that's noteworthy about this, as Teresa points out, is that it, uh, she calls it, uh, Google's, it's a refreshingly down-to-earth approach rather than a fix-it-all solution. And, and it, it, as you said, this is taking place in, in Northern California, which is a agricultural-rich area, and, and specifically looking at a bunch of farmland in the area and how do you you know, target that million acres to uh, regenerative practices, um, and and how do you involve the entire value chain, in, which in, in, in includes universities, includes the supermarkets, Whole Foods, as we said, includes uh, buyers like LinkedIn and uh, and Google that have uh, that you know employees and big food ser food service facilities. And, and I think that's really interesting, but it's very specific to an area. And if you can, you know, sort of, you know, New York, New York, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Maybe uh, we'll see about that. But I like the fact that this is digging deeper, as it were, in a specific area around a specific topic, not trying to transform an mm -hmm. entire system. So, mm -hmm. um, and yeah. yeah, but speaking of transformers. Uh, see what I did there? You know where this is going? I do. <laughs> and also in Northern California, our local utility, uh, the PG&E, the, the uh, beleaguered and, uh, and, and much uh, villainized and, and still at the same time uh, visionary utility is uh, creating something called the linear generator. And they're doing it in a town, frankly, that's not that many miles from here that I had never heard of called Angwin, California. I had to look it up. <laughs> uh, I, I know. I seriously, I I I never heard of Angwin, California, and it, it's a uh, it according to Wikipedia, it's four point nine square miles. About uh, according to the twenty ten uh, census, a little north of three thousand people. Uh, I mean, I, I never heard of it, and I've traveled up to Napa County all the time, which is just uh, north and east of of where I am here in Oakland. Anyway, they're they're. Creating a linear generator. Now you're the tech maven here, so uh, okay. I'm going to let you take over and talk a little about what this <laughs> thing is, because I am quickly over my head. Okay, so I'm not going to get too technical because actually our our great writer Adam Aston, he's um, a, a longtime contributor to Greenbiz. I know he he's, gosh, I think you first recruited him years ago, but um, I, he's been writing occasionally for us and and more so on energy issues recently. And I had actually assigned him to look into this company, uh, a 
about actually two months ago. And it just, lo and behold, it happened that, that they just did a deal with PG&E this week. But the company at, at, um, at the center of this is called Mainspring Energy. They were founded about uh, 11 years ago by some Stanford PhDs in the thermodynamics lab. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're like people that are physicists rather than, um, you know, like t totally focused on energy. And what they've done is taken a different approach to the, the electric generator. Um, instead of moving, and this, I'm gonna simplify it and really, really for a lot for you, but it's like, instead of the generator going around in circles and, and and the magnets spinning in circular motion like generate like most generators in this design they go back and forth along a horizontal axis so they're they're basically um, moving outward and inward as as the fuel and air is 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 hitting the reaction zone and they're they're creating pressure which is which is converting energy into into power so it's a, it's a oversimplification. Definitely, there's a lot more technical uh, explanation in the story. However, the, the point is that um, this is a totally different way approach of, of, of potentially putting a microgrid into a location. And that's actually what PG&E is doing um, in, in, this, in, in this particular installation that they're, they're looking at. They're trying to put um, uh, backup generators that, that can help with, lo and behold, many of the the disruption issues that uh, your your utilities having, and of course utilities around the country, you know, this week of course, complete mess in 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 Louisiana and those poor people, and it's going to take weeks for the the grid there to be back online, and if if that maybe months, I, I don't know, but this is a different approach to microgrids that's being proposed by this this company. Um, PG&E is the the company, the customer that they announced this week, but they're also working with Kroger. They've 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 arranged a power purchase agreement with Kroger to put basically a microgrid at one of its stores. Um, and so, you know, a startup that has some 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 pretty big funding. Uh, they've got like a total of two hundred and twenty eight million from companies like Kosla, Bill Gates. Um, you know, lots of different energy players. Uh, I think their most recent round has Fidelity in it, Chevron, et cetera. So pretty cool startup. Yeah, and, and two things. One, first of all, I failed to mention that Angwin, California, uh, A-N-G-W-I-N, again, I had to look it up, is in fire country. This is where a lot of the fires, yeah. uh, wildfires are taking place. Uh, I'm not mm -hmm. sure it's in the middle of it uh, this week, but it certainly has been and, and no doubt will be. But uh, we haven't really gotten to the environmental benefits of this uh, reciprocating engine, this uh, right. or, 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 or of this uh, linear generator, that is, which is that it, uh, it reduces emissions by 90% and lowers particulates the same and uh, has almost no carbon emissions because it's running on biogas. And so I think there's, oh, and it starts up instantly, which the uh, traditional generators take uh, uh, a lot more time to, to do that, which can cause disruptions when right. there is an outage. So yeah, this is, uh, I think, could be, we'll see, the uh, uh, the way that energy is generated in, uh, particularly in communities that are subject to disruptions, whether it's hurricanes, wildfires, or whatever the heck nature is going to throw at us next. Uh, so this is a very promising development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to mention two other things as we exit this this talk. But one is that they also work with NextEra. 
which is a you know big renewable developer. I think the um, the world's they call themselves the world's largest private sector generator of renewable energy. So again, a really good partner. The other thing is Cal, and as you know very well, California is desperately trying to put microgrids in place. And many of those backup power sources are bum 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 powered by what? Diesel. You got it. Yeah. And so good timing, really good timing. Yeah. Well, let's move over to our third story of the week. Uh, will alternative proteins disrupt textiles? And it's one of these neck snapping, like what? How do alternative proteins, <laughs> you know, the, the alternative proteins, the plant-based meats and, and, and seafood and, and everything else, how is it going to disrupt textiles? And this is, gets into a topic that I am increasingly interested in, although still only mildly dangerous on uh, around uh, synthetic biology, uh, I think is just really interesting stuff. And, uh, and this is about, you know, the same kinds of microbes developed in in labs and produced in inside you know large tanks that be that ultimately create the alternative proteins uh, that you show up in in impossible meats and and and, and all the others or also can be used to uh, create new types of materials uh, textiles uh, enable better manufacturing processes, uh, make uh, textiles more recyclable at the end of their life or, or compostable, I think, as well. And so there, there's this uh, interesting push. Uh, this is a story by Catherine Tubb uh, out of Planet Tracker about this uh, this growing movement of of using microbes to produce new materials. And and that's before we even get to the impacts of cotton and uh, oil inputs of polyester and and so many other synthetic materials. It's just fascinating to watch what's happening in in fashion and apparel these days, and and the pressure that's being put on that sector, and the innovation that's coming out of it. So, here we are. We're using natural processes that you know done in a lab, plant based or, or, or renewable resources, replacing animal based materials like leather, replacing polluting crops like cotton. Um, and, uh, you know, has the potential to really be disruptives uh, with microbes. Absolutely. And one of the other reason I picked this story this week, Joel, is because of it, it's also another about another topic. I think I'm a little bit, you're, you're less dangerous than me, but systems, right? Systems change and systems thinking, because um, you just talked about some of the, uh, the cool sort of related developments that are happening in alternative proteins that could affect materials. But the other thing that I really took away from this was the sort of ripple effects of as the food system changes. And if there are, you know, we talk about fewer cows, right? And we, we mostly talk about that in a, in, a, in a food sense, in a, you know, we, we have to less meat and so forth. But, but we don't really talk about it in terms of the leather that it provides for the fashion industry and why we do need these alternative materials. Um, so like, for example, you know, how those economics will change as, as those commodities become less available. Um, and actually it could help push the price down for the, if you will, the alternative, the next gen ones. But it, that was this, the other one that this sort of fascinated me. I was like, wow, you know, I hadn't really thought, I didn't really think about, you know, the, the, the many ways in which an animal product, if you want to call it that, and I, I don't—I hate using that term—but like, in which an animal is used. Um, so that—that that was the other thing that I was like, wow, you know, I 
didn't really think about that, and it's, it's it got such big consequences. Depending on who's doing the counting, there are hundreds of investment funds broadly focused on celebrating environmental, social, and governance performance. A smaller subset are explicitly marketed as climate-themed. That is, they celebrate green energy or low-carbon investments or something of that nature. Recent analysis by London-based think tank InfluenceMap calls those labels into question. Indeed, it turns out that many climate-themed funds aren't aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Joining GreenBiz 350 to discuss the analysis in more depth is Influence Map analyst Don Van Ecker. Hello, Don. How are you? Hi, Heather. I'm doing well, thanks. Let's start with a level set. For the purposes of this research, what does it mean to be a climate-themed fund, and how is that different from just a broad ESG fund to help me understand the nuances? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, this report specifically has used keywords in the, the fund's name, so in their branding, to identify what type of fund they are. So specifically, when we're talking about climate-themed funds, these are funds which have climate-related keywords in their name. Um, so that's things such as climate, or as you were saying, you were saying earlier, um, low carbon or clean energy or fossil fuel-free. Um, so those are those are really specific climate-focused funds. Then when we look at just more broadly, ESG funds, these are broadly marketed using words like ESG and sustainable in their name. Um, and so that's how we identify those funds. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that really made me pay attention to your research was your, your, your finding that more than half of, of, I think there are about 130 funds that you identified as climate theme funds, and half of them, more than half of them had a, quote, negative Paris Agreement alignment score, end quote. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, so um, what that means is specifically what we're looking at in this case is the portfolios of these funds. So we're analyzing the companies in which the fund has investments, since these are the companies that have the real economy climate impacts that we're interested in. So in order to analyze the, the portfolio of companies that a fund holds, we use a tool called PACTA, uh, which compares the activities of these companies to Paris-aligned scenarios or roadmaps for, the, for these activities. So more concretely, how this works is uh, we have data in a number of climate-relevant sectors on all these real economy companies. What kind of activities do they plan to conduct over the next few years? Uh, for example, how many barrels of oil will a certain oil major produce over the next five years? We can then compare this planned production data to a trajectory which is Paris-aligned and which lays out prescriptions within that sector uh, for the companies. So the gap then between this planned production by this real economy company and the Paris-aligned roadmap gives us an alignment score. So when we say, for example, that a fund has an alignment score of 0%, that means that on average across the companies in its portfolio, these companies will produce in line with the Paris-aligned scenario uh, over the next five years. As to your question, a negative score indicates that the companies in the portfolio uh, will be too active in, in brown technologies over the coming years and not acting active enough in green uh, activities compared to uh, the Paris line scenario. Got it. So which fund was the most misaligned, if you will, and why? Sure. So among the climate-themed funds, the most misaligned fund is called the Great Wall Environmental Protection Mixed Fund. So this is a Chinese fund managed by Great Wall Fund Management. And the reason it's so misaligned 
in particular is because it has very high exposure to the automotive sector. And in particular, within that sector, it's very exposed to companies which plan to continue to produce very heavily in um, brown cars, so internal combustion engine vehicles, and don't transition considerably to electric vehicles, which misaligns from the Paris line scenario. Yeah. So I love talking about the good too. So what fund was the best scoring and why? Yeah. So the best scoring fund was um, called PAX Global Environmental Markets Fund. And this is a US-based fund uh, managed by Impax Asset Management. And the strategy of this fund is to focus on resource efficiency and environmental solutions companies. So as a result, this company has considerable exposure to the power sector in our analysis. Um, and particularly within that sector, it focuses heavily on renewable energy solutions. And so renewables, uh, heavy, heavy companies. And as a result, uh, it, it receives a very positively aligned score. Got it. Now, you mentioned before that you use keywords and you use a, it sounds like an artificial intelligence tool to dig out the uh, information about uh, the claims of these funds. So, and, and there's different categories, right? So you have energy sector, you've got different sectors of funds that are representative. So uh, what, what category of funds seems to be representing itself most accurately? In other words, their, their claims are the most accurate. It's a bit hard to say because there's many different strategies for climate funds through which they you know, try to achieve their impact. So a fund marketed as climate themed um, might have the specific strategy of continuing to hold oil companies, but to actively engage with them and to try and transform their activities. As a result, you know, the findings of the report don't necessarily contradict the strategies or, or the marketing of individual funds. But what we do find is that when we look at the market as a whole, there's very little consistency in what it means uh, for certain categories or certain uh, keywords to appear in a, in a climate fund's name. So for example, uh, when, a, when a fund is marketed as low carbon or uh, fossil fuel free, that could be anything from you know, an engagement fund, which actively continues to hold companies, as I just explained, to simply an adjusted index fund, which passively holds these companies because it's attempting to track some market index. And as a result of this, it's quite difficult for investors to, to discern how these different funds compare to each other, how categories of funds even compare to each other, and which fund actually aligns with their with their investment goals. Yeah, and it was interesting. The other one of the other data points I found particularly fascinating was that climate themed funds hold, at least at the time of the research, about one hundred and fifty three million dollars worth of uh, holdings from companies like Halliburton, Chevron, and ExxonMobil, like fossil fuels companies. So, you know, I'm curious, what percentage of the total is that? Is that like a little bit or is a lot, you know, of the of the total? So it's actually not a lot. Um, if we look at the total value of the climate theme funds analyzed in the report, that comes out to about $67 billion. So the $153 million only makes up about 0.2% of that. Um, the point of the report wasn't necessarily to highlight that um, you know, the fossil fuel value chain is a massive part of this climate-themed fund market, um, but rather that these funds do often continue to hold some such companies and that whether they do or not isn't necessarily clear from their branding uh, or their marketing. For example, some of the funds that we highlighted in the report um, are branded as being fossil fuel reserves-free or fossil fuel screened. Um, and what that means in practice is these funds divest from upstream fossil fuel companies, which you know have holdings in fossil fuel reserves. Um, but in the meanwhile, these funds continue to invest in downstream companies such as oil refiners or distributors, um, and as a result, still have non-negligible exposure to the fossil fuel value chain. 
And, you know, it's kind of that indirect or sorry, unclear um, relationship between the branding and the holdings of the company um, that we were attempting to highlight. So it's less that you think people sh funds should divest, if you will, and more that they they don't represent themselves properly. I'm curious: do should these should an ESG fund or a climate theme fund be divesting of these, or is there the case that, to be made that some of these fossil fuel companies are transitioning, that they need engagement, if you will, like you mentioned before, and, and help? Like, is there a position that, that Influence Map has on so, that? So um, we don't uh, attempt to pass judgment on what these individual funds you know, should or shouldn't do. Um, that largely depends on the investment strategy that they're aiming to achieve and the strategy that their investors want them to achieve. Um, so I, I can't give an answer to the question as to what these funds should or shouldn't do. Um, rather, simply, uh, the report highlights that it is important um, for these funds to, to be more clearly branded and and for there to be more transparency and consistency across the market of these funds as to what, what their strategy is in relation to how they're branding themselves. One final question for you. What's the call to action for investors? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, it's, it's been very clear over the past few years that there's been this massive growth um, in demand for these sustainable investing products, including these ESG and climate-themed funds from investors. But in practice, you know, these products aren't always well-defined or transparent. So in practice, what that means for investors in the current market is they often need to do considerable amounts of research to discern how funds compare to each other and which funds are actually aligned with their investment goals. Um, so you know, as an investor, the call to action is you know, make sure to do your research. But really, I think the larger message of the report is, is a call to action for policymakers. So specifically, we highlight that um, this, this inconsistency and, and lack of transparency across the sector could be aided by putting in place regulation, which insert, ensures the definition of these climate-themed funds, uh, keywords, and what kind of activities can be branded as sustainable. And I think that's kind of the larger call to action that we're, that we're attempting to, to gather evidence for in this report. Well, thank you for your time today, Don. Oh, thanks. thanks very much for having me on. You just heard from Don Benacker, analyst with Influence Map. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters, a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Have a safe holiday weekend in the United States, and thanks so much for tuning in. <music>